We are back from the break with the next episode of Securiosity. But first, it's coming up. DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the largest gathering of the cyber community for a week of learning, collaborating, and networking. Register now for DC Cyber Week, running from October 21st to 25th, to gain access to interactive sessions hosted by the most prominent players in the cyber community. The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, so this is a critical time to come together and be a part of the conversation, sharpen your skills, expand your professional network, and get ahead of the game. To register, visit dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for September 7th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Apple had a really rough two weeks, and we will break down exactly how bad it was and what it means for your precious little iPhone. In our interview, Joachim Sundberg, founder of Baffin Bay Networks, he tells us all about always helping companies detect threats in their cloud. Lots of breaches and business deals to get to, and we will run through it rapid fire style. But first, let's get you caught up on what happened to close the summer. It's been a rough couple weeks for Apple. First, the tech giant patched a bug that could have allowed hackers to jailbreak a device running the latest iOS, a rare security oversight for the tech giant. The fix stopped allowing users to install unauthorized software on a device, which can make phones more vulnerable to hacking. Apple previously had fixed the same bug earlier this year after a Google researcher flagged it in a prior version of the iOS. Shortly after that, it was found that attackers spent two years using breach websites to try to siphon information off thousands of iPhones. Researchers from Google's Project Zero detailed malicious activity involving five so-called exploit chains in which hackers linked together Apple vulnerabilities to get around Apple security. By directing iPhone connections to specific web pages, the attackers proved capable of accessing a device's kernel and other key parts of the operating system. They were able to secretly install malicious apps, monitor users' location, or take other action, Google said. The vulnerabilities affect iOS versions 10 through 12.4. The vulnerabilities were patched in latest update, iOS 12.41. Craig, what does that mean for Apple security? Well, um, it's not it's not great stuff. And the reason it's not great is because, look, we, we've talked about it a bunch on this podcast. And there's been a greater conversation in the cybersecurity community overall that Apple generally has the best security when it comes to mobile phones. They're better than Android. They're better than anything else that is out there. And this goes to show that, okay, even with that notion, it still isn't you know, completely secure. It's not uh, a fortress. There are ways in which you can uh, hack an iPhone. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to read the details of what this looks to be linked to. It looks like China was behind this, but the motives seem to be that China was going after its Uyghur population with this. And for anybody that's unfamiliar, the Uyghurs are uh, a, a Muslim faction that lives in China and uh, I believe wants its own uh, independence from China overall, which is surprising to me because if you're sitting on exploit chains for iPhones, it it seems like you would use them elsewhere. Like I, I will fully admit that I'm not totally into the, the the geopolitics and the relationship between um, the Chinese government and the Uyghur population. But I, I, I can't believe that for all the firepower that you have with sitting on about a dozen iOS zero days, that this is where you would use them. That just strikes me as a, a, a wasted uh, espionage opportunity. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that they didn't end up turning it on the, the Western world. But at the same time, I'm really surprised by the motive here. I mean, clearly they have a reason to, or, or they think they have a reason to do it what they did instead of coming after the Western world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, look, an- another thing that also happened was that uh, Zerodium, the big uh, bug bounty uh, zero day company, upped its ante for uh, iOS exploits as well. Um, raise the bar. I think now I think the top exploit is selling for about 2.5 million, which is just perverse incentives there really. So it it really has been rough for uh, Apple and the, the, the thought that, you know, Apple is ultimately secure 
you know, that still stands a little bit, but it's starting to erode. And and don't get me wrong. Look, the, the everyday user is not going to have to worry about this. This isn't a thing that, you know, 98% of the population has to worry about. But at the same time, we would have said 99 or 100 as of uh, two, three weeks ago. So we're starting Mm -hmm. to see stuff uh, chipping away when it comes to iOS security. Now, you're not going to go out and buy an Android this weekend, are you? No, I'm not that paranoid. That's that's not what's what's um, going to happen. I'm I'm still secure uh, in my iPhone. I I trust it because I don't think that you know I'm go- I'm not going to click on any links to weird websites that might get fed to me in terms of you know a random text message or a random phone call or anything like that. I don't think I'm being targeted. But if you believe that you are being targeted, it might be easier to go get a hardened Android phone now. Um, it's, it's starting to show that, you know, you're not going to be able to trust a stock phone. You're going to need some hardening, no matter what operating system you choose to buy. So speaking of those operating systems, 11 websites related to China's Uyghur population and the East Turkestan region where they reside were compromised and exploited as part of a surveillance operation that may be connected to the iOS hacking campaign we just talked about. The incident response firm Velexity said sites had been strategically compromised and leveraged as part of a series of attack campaigns aimed at the Uyghur people by using affected websites, which range from the Uyghur Times, the Turkestan Press, Turkestan TV, and the Uyghur Academy. Hackers could infect visitors' Android devices and collect information, including the unique identification number, phone number, location, CPU data, username, and other sensitive details. Alexity did not directly attribute the attack to Beijing, but added it's reasonable to suspect that these same attack campaigns could have easily been leveraged to target Apple and Microsoft users. So, Jen, uh, again, do you believe that all of these flaws are linked to China just going after a small geopolitical group? It seemed like it would have to be, right? I mean, what could the other option here? Because I think really anybody else is going to go after something bigger and something a little bit more interesting. The the more I think about it, the more I wonder whether China uses the Uyghur population twofold in that, yeah, they, they want to gather this information, you know, primary for intelligence purposes and, and what they want to do with monitoring that group. But also, I wonder if China uses this the same way the Russians use Ukraine in that we see a lot of attacks directed at Ukraine from Russia as sort of a test bed. Russia likes to launch attacks. They hit what they need to hit for um, their purposes when it comes to Ukraine. And then they gather their intelligence and sort of, you know, point the, the weapons elsewhere in the world. I wonder if China's sort of doing the same thing here where they go, okay, this is going to be our test bed. We still have intelligence purposes here, but we're going to take what we can from our, you know, operations pointed to the Uyghurs, learn what we can, reformulate it, and then put it out into the world elsewhere. I would not be surprised if that's what's going on here. How big is that population in China? Uh, it looks like in China, there are about 11 million people that identify as Uyghurs. So- yeah, it's it's not insignificant. So that's that's something that is clearly something worth watching apparently to the Chinese government. They're the fifth most populous ethnic group in China, but uh, overall percentage-wise it's not even 1% of the population in China. So, uh, you know, there's by terms of just raw population numbers, it's not insignificant, but at the same time population percentage you're talking about less than 1%. So it, it, it's really, really interesting to follow. Again, I, I am not caught up on it. This obviously is something that I, I, I need to and will in the future because it's clear that China is watching them and has been watching them for a long time. But yeah, again, I, I, I go back to, I, I, I really think that it's just a, a test bed. It's a test bed. And then China turns around and, and reformulates their operations and points it toward you know the rest of their targets. I guess we'll watch and see what happens next with that community. Well, a big portion of the current trade war is focused on tech giant Huawei. Another company based in China has been battling U.S. government claims that its products present national security concerns. DJI Technology, the world's largest commercial drone maker, 
is facing a ban from all U.S. military purchases over cybersecurity concerns and allegations of links to the Chinese government. But while the company has been accused of security issues, a threat level nudged up to a national security threat, as one Senate officer told CyberScoop, few supporting details emerged. Greg, what's with the lack of details? So this was a really popular story for us at the end of August. Uh, uh, a reporter for us, you know, dug deep. We keep hearing that DJI is a national security concern on the level of Huawei. And I said, okay, go go find us. Like, go find us some some concrete info. Go talk to some people and see what we can find out. And we didn't find out a lot because there doesn't seem to be a lot of information. What it looks like to us is that DJI products are inherently, um, at least they they were when they first came on the market, they were inherently insecure just because they were coded poorly. Like it was just buggy code. So uh, as they became more of an enterprise tool, they still had this buggy code in it and there was the possibility of you know data being scraped or breaches in the company and all different types of security issues. They have since realized that since governments and enterprises want to use their drones as actual business tools, that they need to have more security built in. And the company has moved uh, to do that. And the US military is one of these enterprises that is trying to use these drones for uh, you know, reconnaissance. Like, don't think of it as military drones in the same way you think about, like, as a predator drone or something like that. Like, we're talking like quadcopters and the things that like hobbyists use here. Um, so none of that to me sounds like, oh no, this is linked to to another government. I mean, that sounds like normal course of business. You build some sort of technology for consumers. Consumers don't need all the security, and quite frankly you know, that kind of fits in the category of like IOT security. And that really hasn't been a thing until recently. Yeah. Uh, we just thinking about that in terms of our cameras in our home and our thermostats and, and all that stuff. So it's, I'm not really surprised and it makes sense that the company would be working on, on it now as it moves into the enterprise. Yeah. And I'm not even sure it would work on it going to enterprise right away. I think it would be something that would come over time when you realize you want to work with us. Yeah, I think that DJI was slow to realize how their devices were being used. And I think that was a big part of the problem because uh, the company was like, look, we've changed. And okay, that that's fine and, and good for you. I'm glad that you've changed. But at the same time, you're still being called a national security threat. Now, on the flip side of that coin, we talked to people on Capitol Hill, numerous people on Capitol Hill. And when we finally, you know, press them to be like, okay, what is the threat? They couldn't give us any concrete information. So uh, I, I don't get the sense that they are the same thing as Huawei, where Huawei has this, you know, grand uh, market share of the backbone of the internet. Like DJI is just a small company that makes drones. They're the most popular drone company, but obviously making drones and making networking equipment for the global internet, like there's a gap there. There's a huge gap in that. So uh, I, I, I can see it both ways where the US government wants to make sure that the company is secure, but at the same time, if the company doesn't have any evidence or if the US government doesn't have any evidence that they're insecure, what are we even talking about here? So it, it, TBD, uh, to be continued, but um, some really interesting stuff there in that DJI is not just Huawei for drones. So to the InfoSec drama story that has riveted the community for the past month, Crown Sterling, which describes itself as an emerging digital cryptography vendor, filed a lawsuit against the parent company that organizes the Black Hat Conference for alleged breach of contract in connection with the controversy over a sponsored talk delivered during a recent conference. On August 8th, CEO Robert Grant described Time AI, a technology he claimed would upend the world of encryption with its use of, quote, quasi-prime numbers and infinite wave conjugations. The CEO of the consultancy Trail of Bits stood up toward the end of the presentation to say Grant should be ashamed of himself for hawking technology that others have described as bunk and predicted Black Hat would remove the presentation from its site. 
By Crown Sterling logic, this disruption and black hat response amounted to defamatory smear campaigns. Jen, have you ever heard of anything so petty? I thought this was the most interesting story to come out of black hat. <laughs> uh, I just think it's not, it's not often that people um, stand up an audience and just say like, this is crap, um, which isn't the word he used, but like, just so fascinating. Um, and you know, quite frankly, there are so many companies out there talking about um, AI and cybersecurity and, you know, name your buzzwords that the technology they're talking about just doesn't work. And so it's kind of refreshing um, to sort of see somebody else getting up and saying that. Cause I feel like from the VC perspective, you know, I sit in a conference room and I hear these companies pitch and, you know, sometimes I'm sitting there thinking there's no way this is possible. Um, so it's nice to see um, somebody just point something out and say, this doesn't work. Um, but in the same time, the guy who was making the presentation, what else is he going to do? Right. I mean, this made people's blogs, this made articles, this was out there that this ruckus was caused. It's a rare occurrence, I think. Um, I mean, he had to file a lawsuit. He had to make a big deal of it because his reputation's online. And I would say to anybody that is really following this, Sean Gallagher at Ars Technica actually did a Q&A with, or I'm not sure it was a Q&A, but he did an interview with uh, the CEO of this company and talking about Time AI. And his background is, and I'll lightly say this is interesting, um, he looks like he had a bunch of patents in the healthcare world. Like, and we're talking like, think along the lines of like cosmetic surgery and that sort of healthcare stuff, not, not like vaccines or, or big pharma or anything like that. Like we're talking patents on cosmetic stuff and the, the conversations about the, how this product actually works. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't seem like anybody has any idea what they're talking about. And it's like, and it goes back to what you were saying, even the people who seemingly know the landscape sometimes don't know what they're talking about when it comes to their products. So you got to really like get out there on a galaxy brain level to stir up this kind of controversy with your product to be like, no, I'm, I'm, this is, this is BS. This is very bad. And you're not going to be able to survive in this community. So, I mean, we're going to follow this lawsuit. I would not be surprised if the lawsuit gets thrown out, but it, this has just been a fascinating thing to watch over this past month. I mean, absolutely. You know, and I just, you see that, well, I see this um, from inventors on an occasion where they've had success, um, maybe filing patents, maybe they've built a company before in some other space and, you know, really are sort of big thinkers, um, you know, I'll see them pop up, um, pitching me things that, you know, maybe someone else has already done, but they're not, you know, but they'll claim they're the only person's ever done this or that has been proven not to work. Um, you know, but they don't spend enough time on sort of doing their homework around what else has happened in that space to really be credible and really like figure out, Oh wait, maybe this wasn't a good idea. So I'm not really surprised, but I was a little bit surprised that that in this big audience, um, somebody called him out. I'm happy to see it, um, but surprised still. So a federal grand jury indicted Paige Thompson, the accused Capital One hacker, in connection with allegations that she accessed data on more than 30 companies and used that, that illicit access to generate cryptocurrency. Thompson was arrested last month on suspicion of hacking into the bank systems and accessing data on roughly 106 million people. The indictment reiterates many of the allegations laid out in last month's FBI complaint against, adding accusations that Thompson obtained sensitive data from companies outside Capital One, including an unnamed university and a telecommunications firm. Federal attorneys from the Western District of Washington also say Thompson, upon breaching victim organizations, leveraged that computing power to mine for cryptocurrency, an activity known as cryptojacking. Earlier this week, Thompson pled not guilty. Greg, what's with the plea? You think she just um, 
isn't admitting to the to more companies outside of Capital One. Yeah, I, I, you know what? Now that you say that, uh, initially I was like, something doesn't add up here, but I think that the not guilty plea really factors into the thirty companies because. At least this is what the government said in some of the court documents is that she admitted to the Capital One stuff. She she turned it over to them. I mean, the, the government is allegedly yeah. in possession of the drive that has the, has the data taken from Capital One. So I don't really understand what the not guilty plea has to do with the Capital One stuff. I mean, you're free to plea what you want, but th- there's a mountain of evidence, including her own words and her own. Uh, own drives that were in her possession um, that show that she was responsible for Capital One. The 30 companies part, uh, that's that's probably where the, the not guilty plea really focuses on. Well, I wonder if that will get her off of it entirely, right? If you make the, uh, the charge so broad and then it proves just to be Capital One or just to be like the, the university and the telecommunications and, and Capital One. And it's three, not thirty. I wonder what that does. Well, the, the the government could do itself a huge favor in this regard by you know putting forth the information that that you know what other companies were hacked. I mean, we we've seen some some trickles of of some names that have been out there. Uh, there were some reports that Ford were, was hit. There was some reports that Vodafone was hit. There was reports that Michigan State University was hit. I mean, who knows who, who has all of these uh, cloud instances? I mean, hey, we know how popular AWS is. So uh, across the board, there's got to be tons of organizations that are out there that have cloud instances that are AWS. So um it would go a long way for the government's side of things to say, well, okay, she pled not guilty. Here's the evidence. Here's the Capital One evidence. And then here's the evidence with these, you know, other companies or organizations that have been hacked. But going to that, right, 29 other organizations, don't the victims need to know? I totally agree with you. I uh, They do. So I don't know what's been taken, you know, so long. Like think back to the, um, you know, to the details of this uh, incident. The Capital One, Capital One knew something was up. They were alerted through a vulnerability disclosure email. And within a month, this became news. And that's unheard of. So what's taking everybody else so long? Like what what's what's the deal there? I, I, that is something that I do not understand and might go to show that vulnerability disclosure isn't the same no matter the case, no matter what. So I'm really, really interested to see some of uh, the the evidence of these other companies that have been hacked come forward because obviously they are now a part of the case. So time to make them public. For sure. The National Security Agency's new cybersecurity directorate wants to more quickly share threat data in response to criticism that the agency has been slow to provide key information that companies need to protect themselves, the head of the new foreign intelligence and digital defense outfit said on Wednesday. The NSA's reason for creating the cybersecurity directorate, which is set to launch on October 1st, was to address the perception that context is lacking in U.S. intelligence communities' threat reports that are issued to private companies. The new directorate will try to help companies understand hackers' overall goals, how they achieve those goals with multiple pieces of software, and what specific technical infrastructure firms can monitor for threats, said the new chief, Ann Newberger. Jen, how fast do you think the NSA should move in this regard? I mean, I think they should move, you know, as, as fast as possible. Like, I mean, look, it's important that we all understand cyber threats better and understand what's going on out there and, and getting information out to companies. Um, it's about time, I guess. Um, you know, certainly I imagine they'll run pretty quickly, right? Once it's a, it's a thing, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, this initiative is going to be around for a while, but it's clear that it, it needs to be quicker. And, and you know, this is the, the this has been a longstanding problem in that the government wants to share some information, but not all, because they have their own purposes for that information. Particularly, you know, signals intelligence. The NSA has you know their own intel operations and obviously wants to sit on the information uh, as long as possible for their own purposes. At the same time, it would go a long way if private companies was, you know, if they were seeing the same information. It, it, it's like, 
it's self-defeating in that why why wouldn't there just be just one singular entity that is pushing out this information and can help protect banks and and power plants and water treatment plants like this is what needs to happen and the NSA is the most elite cybersecurity unit the uh, government has so they should be pushing more of that elite information out into the world in order for private companies to protect themselves. I agree with that. And uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to follow up with uh, Anne uh, on this. Um, Anne is actually going to be speaking at Cyber Talks as part of DC Cyber oh, Week, awesome. and uh, definitely can't wait to talk to her about this a little bit more. This is clearly something uh, the NSA wants to talk about because why would the head of the Cybersecurity Directorate uh, be out there talking otherwise? So interested to hear. How how um, you know the feedback is to you know this piece of news, and uh, sort of hear her go more in depth on the cyber talk stage. So, speaking of the NSA, anyone interested in cybersecurity law and policy can now enroll in a course that was partly shaped by the agency. The online course touches on international and domestic cybersecurity law, cyber risk, and reasons on how smartphones function. Although the course is unclassified, it is not intended to cover internal NSA policy or business. The course description notes it may prepare students for potential future employment with the U.S. government in cybersecurity field. I mean, Greg, I think this sounds like a good idea. Do you? Yeah, I actually want to check out this course for myself and just see what I could possibly learn from it. It's totally free. It's up on uh, the Clark Center's website. The Clark Center is this you know, consortium of uh, learning that I believe is actually run by Towson University, but other universities um, participate uh, in this as well. And um, yeah, I mean, if you could take an online course and it covers all of these these things, these soft skills that everybody wants to talk about and that everybody talks about when they're talking about the cybersecurity workforce gap. And it could help you with potential future employment, especially within the US government. Um, I, I don't see how that's a bad idea. I mean, that's totally smart. More and more people need to understand that cybersecurity isn't just the ones and zeros. It's not just the technical aspect of it. There's policy, risk, and um, you know, geo geopolitics and international law and domestic law that goes into this stuff too. So, Jen, would you take a look at this course? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, why wouldn't you take this course? It, it just it just seems like if it's free, um, if you can learn anything about how you could potentially be better protected by understanding what sort of the, the laws are and what goes around it, I think you should. So from the NSA to NASA, this one is interesting. Speaking of beyond even international law, Anne McLean, a decorated astronaut, was in the midst of a six-month mission on the International Space Station when her estranged wife said McLean improperly accessed her bank account. Now, a NASA inspector general is investigating whether McLean committed a crime by using her wife's password in a way that wasn't allowed. And while the circumstances of this case are a novelty, the matter highlights a common legal question that U.S. courts are trying to resolve. Just when is a person allowed to use someone's password, and when does that violate the law? Jen, laws still count in space, right? This is such a great story. And um, apparently, if you're going through a divorce and you're trying to find out people's finances, you should become an astronaut because then you can hack in a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that the internet connectivity on the space station is good enough where you can do some some daily banking. Like you can, <laughs> you can mess around with just a, a retail bank account. Uh, who knew? Yeah. Um, I mean, interesting. And, you know, in general, I, on all sides, I just kind of think that's a, just embarrassing to to sort of put out there in the world, but to each their own. You would think that even if you are up on the space station, I know the, the those astronauts are up there for an extended amount of time, you have a little bit more going on than, hmm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, just surf the web and mess around and, and use my extremely expensive uh, computers and research instruments to, you know, log on to, you know, the, the Bank of America online banking site. It just seems like you would have uh, a lot more going on and be distracted by a lot more uh, if you're, you know, floating through space on the space station. I don't know, but right, six months um, is kind of lonely. Um, and you can only look out into space for so many hours a day. Um, 
and I imagine it's not as easy to sleep. And, you know, I guess you have to do something. Why not hack into people's bank accounts? Well, <laughs> <Why not? laughs> hey, but <laughs> lesson learned. If you get bored in space, uh, possibly violate the hacking laws. <laughs> so researchers have found an issue with a key component in various super micro motherboards that could allow attackers to remotely access some of the organization's most valuable assets. Issues in the baseboard management controllers of Supermicro's X9, X10, and X11 platforms could allow an attacker to easily connect to a server and mount a virtual disk to the BMC, according to researchers from Eclipsum. After mounting a drive, an attacker could modify a server, implant malware, or even disable the device entirely. Making the problem worse is researchers finding the amount of BMCs directly connected to the internet. In a search of TCP port 623, the port by which a virtual USB connects to the BMC, Eclipse and researchers found 47,000 systems with their BMCs exposed to the internet and using the relevant protocol. So what does this mean for Supermicro? It's been a long time since they've been in the news. Yeah. So, well, well, basically what it means, like, let's go back to the last time they were in the news. It was that big Bloomberg story that we've talked about Um <laughs> For, for months. And months, if, yeah. if anything, this goes to show why that story didn't make sense. Because if you remember, that story said that there was a harder implant next to Supermicro BMCs that were capable of beaconing back to China. And that would yeah. take heaven and earth from a supply chain standpoint in order to actually make that real. Stories like this one with uh, the BMC being accessible to the internet show exactly why the Bloomberg story didn't really make sense. You would not move heaven and earth to disrupt the supply chain when it's clear that you can get to a BMC because people are connecting them to the internet. Like that's, it it just goes to show how easy it is because people do dumb things. It was funny. I, uh, I was talking to a researcher about this story because I needed some details because I am not a firmware expert at all. And I got through like halfway through the explanation and he was like, yeah, Greg, in order to do that, you would have to connect, you know, virtually through the internet to the BMC, but you would never do that. And I was like, oh, oh, friend, let me tell you that that is exactly what's going on here. And he was like, just absolutely flabbergasted by it. He was like, Greg, if I found out that you were, you know, in in charge of these servers where you, you had to do that, and I found out that you were virtually, you know, connecting into a BMC over the internet, I'd throw you off the top of the data center. Like that's just not the way you should do this at all. So um, look, and, and Supermicro uh, has worked with Eclipsium. They said that, okay, they were not that they were aware of it, but they were made aware of it. And they were pushing fixes to make sure that this didn't happen because it was it had to do a, a lot with uh, the way that uh, the software of a virtual USB was connecting to the BMC. It was just very poorly encrypted and should not have been using the application that it was. So it's going to be updated and it's going to be fixed. But the fact that the BMCs are are visible on the internet, if you know how to use Shodan, you you can find all of these BMCs. Like it, it, supply chain, heaven and earth, rice size chips on BMCs that does not need to happen when you have issues like this. It's amazing. Don't connect your BMCs to the internet. How? I mean, again, I'm not a firmware expert, but I'm I'm smart enough now to know that, yeah, connecting uh, uh, crucial firmware components to the internet so you can remotely access them, very, very bad idea. Terrible. So, Jen, there were a bunch of breaches that happened over the last two weeks. Let's hit them rapid fire. All right, so Internet Domain Registrar Hostinger International reset customer passwords following a data breach in which an outsider accessed a database containing information about 14 million users. The site's management said that an unauthorized third party has gained access to our internal system API, one of which has access to hash passwords and other non-financial data about our customers. The breach API database includes client usernames, emails, hash passwords, First names and IP addresses, the firm has reset passwords as a precautionary measure. In Perva, who recently acquired one of my companies, still has passwords, email addresses, SSL certificates, and other data for customers 
of its cloud firewall protection of its cloud firewall product exposed. The vendor known for its DDoS protection did not disclose the number of customers affected or when the incident began, but the company did say data was vulnerable through September 15, 2017. The company, which recently announced its acquisition of bot mitigation firm Distill Networks, said it has enlisted outside help to investigate the incident and has notified international regulators. Hackers impersonated Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey by exploiting CloudHopper, Twitter's text-to-tweet service that allows users to tweet via text message. The hack appears to have taken place via a SIM swap attack that can take place when attackers convince a phone company to assign a user's number to a new device. According to Twitter, the phone number associated with the account was compromised due to a security oversight by the mobile provider. Craig, which one of these is the worst? I would have to say Twitter, that just because it's so dumb. Like, if you are Jack Dorsey and you've been time and time again pummeled on security issues <laughs> on your platform along with everybody else, and you have this way to send, you know send tweets via SMS and you've heard about the SMS problems and how that's insecure and how SIM jacking and SIM swapping uh, occurs and and you still haven't done anything like I'm at a loss for words. Like you can't, you, you can't be that dumb. Like, I'm sorry. You just can't be that dumb. It's not one of these things where, heaven and earth needed to be moved in order to to hack and you're uh, a victim. Like this, this this could have been avoided and just looks so dumb. It looks so, so dumb. It just does. It's lazy. It's, it's just uh, lazy. Like, and, and it's not that Dorsey doesn't understand InfoSec at all. I mean, if you're the CEO, he's also the CEO of of Square and and the Cash App. So obviously, there's layers and upon layers of security that go into the movement of money there. Like, why would you not apply that the, the, the same practices at uh, w- within your own account, your own uh, Twitter account? It's, it's staggering, staggering to me. I mean, but don't get me wrong. The imperfect thing too. The imperfect thing is is pretty bad because hey. We're talking about your cloud firewall product here, and you're talking about the SSL certificates for your cloud firewall product. Ew, like that's ugly too. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty ugly too. When you start to get into the the you know messing around with the the certificates, that's never a good sign. So tell us about all the funding news this week. Okay, so there were a bunch of deals uh, this week. Uh, Palo Alto Networks announced Wednesday it will acquire Zingbox, spending $75 million in cash to bring the Internet of Things security vendor under its umbrella. The deal, which Palo Alto says will close during the first quarter of 2020, marks the fourth acquisition for the security giant this year following Twistlock, PureSec, and Demisto. Then on the smaller side of things, Stage Fund Private Equity acquired Symmetria, an Israel-based cybersecurity deception platform that previously raised around $11 million from VC firms like Sherpa Ventures and Perimeter X. We talked about them last episode because they acquired a company and now they've raised some money. The automated website security startup raised $14 million in a new Series C funding from Deutsche Telekom Capital Partners and Salesforce Ventures. Jen, what do you think? I mean, I think that Palo Alto Networks um, acquiring Zingbox is the most interesting. You know, I think it, again, shows us what's happening in the market, that these bigger companies are going to start um, offering more services, and they're going to do that instead of building stuff in-house. They're going to do that by acquiring other companies that are working on the problems. And I think that's how this market's got to go. Yeah. Uh, we wrote a story last month. Jeff Stone wrote a really interesting story that the bigger vendors are racing to become the first, you know, soup to nut cybersecurity company where you can literally have everything. You can get everything from their uh, portfolio of products. And it's clear that that's Palo Alto's strategy. I mean, fourth acquisition in, in the year. I mean, that's that's pretty aggressive, right? Super aggressive. So um, it's clear that Palo Alto is trying to, you know, climb that ladder to become, uh, you know, the the big company on top and can give 
everything to everybody. If uh, you know you're worried about cloud security, you can go to Palo Alto. Bots, Palo Alto. Now, Internet of Things, you can go right back to Palo Alto. So, um, really interesting strategy and, and aggressive strategy too. Yeah, and I think it makes it easier for everyone, right? If you can just go to, if you can just walk in their door and say, "I need help," and let them do everything, like that's amazing. Right. Uh, of course. Of course. Really, really the linchpin here is making sure that uh, let's make sure that all of this tech works. So speaking of how tech works, we are going to jump to our interview with Joachim Sundberg. Joachim uh, is the founder of Baffin Bay Networks, and we talked to him about his platform and how he's helping out with the cloud and how enterprises are protecting themselves. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Joachim Sumberg, CEO and founder of Baffin Bay Networks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Baffin Bay and what exactly it is that you guys do. I know you sit between uh, companies, cloud security infrastructure and the open internet, but I would love to hear uh, from your angle, you know, how all of that works and, and how you are providing uh, security to people that are moving to the cloud. Sure. Uh, I mean, we set off for about two years ago to build a cloud-native threat protection platform, which is really a shim between any type of service a customer can operate and run, an API, a web service, a web page and e-commerce, uh, running a sports book or being a bank or something else. Um, I think what we see uh, with the move in the trends towards the cloud and like specifically within finance where people now are accepted to run uh, banking environments within AWS and other type of public clouds, uh, it's really hard to get the same level of protection uh, that you would in a normal data center. Uh, so that's the reason we uh, built the cloud native platform, which can deal with both data center uh, uh, protection as well as AWS, uh, Google Cloud, or some, some other type of cloud uh, that you may operate and run your services within. So we really act as a shim between uh, blocking the distributed denial of service attacks, the web application attacks, spot attempts, uh, it could be a text towards vulnerabilities uh, on the underlying operating system uh, or infrastructure. So if I'm a threat analyst or I'm sitting in a SOC and I have a Baffin Bay you know, hooked into my cloud infrastructure, what am I seeing? So as a customer, you uh, so the journey as a customer, when you come on board, you select the different modules you want to use. So not necessarily everyone has the need or Will, willing uh, willingness to use the bot protection module uh, or maybe the web application by one module, but they, they go and select the, the distributed denial of service protection, for example, Okay. Uh, or may go for IPS capabilities. But uh, so it's a la carte menu from that perspective. Customers can select and pick the modules they want to use. Um, they come on board, we route the traffic through us, um, either through B2P or DNS, okay. pointing a DNS record to us. Uh, once that happens, customer can log on to portal, uh, and through the portal, they can see all the traffic they have. Uh, they can see things that we block and identify. Uh, we give them flow charts, flow data. Uh, they can see where traffic originates from, um, do some prioritization and, and uh, get insight, really insight into uh, both the tech side of things, but as well as the network side of things. So. so you know, you were just talking about how financial institutions are setting up more and more in the cloud, and we saw with Capital One that this stuff, you, you can be you know, regarded as being really, really good with uh, security and still be, yeah, <laughs> still have uh, cybersecurity issues. So, um, uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're telling your customers when it comes to setting up, uh, you know, security perimeters in the cloud and what they need to be considering when they continue to move toward the cloud and continue to move toward digital transformation. Sure, I think, but uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the journey into cloud for any type of company, uh, you have to keep in mind that you can not have a weaker link uh, from a security perspective uh, in whatever you deploy in the cloud. Uh, I mean, if you have an IPS, if you have firewall, IPS, DPI capabilities, DDoS mitigation, and so on on-prem, uh, why shouldn't you have that when you are in the cloud? Uh, and I think what we see is many or more companies uh, moving into the cloud, uh, not necessarily having the right tools and equipment, because it partially hasn't been there, uh, partially has been uh, uh, like, uh, it could have been like you had an AWS instance, you had a Google Cloud instance, two different web application firewalls, uh, two 
different type of security policies. As a security operator, how do you know how to operate each individual component in each cloud instance you have? Right. Uh, which is a big problem, so that's down to scale, right? Uh, but also having the actual capabilities of, of running the same kind of security equipment, uh, even though if you host it in AWS versus in, 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 in on, or on-prem. Uh, so I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, and also that many are more loose uh, when it comes to uh, comes to, to the security policy and, and things get accepted in a lighter way when you move to the cloud versus when you have something on-prem in a data center. Uh, historically, uh, the firewall has been sitting there. Uh, when you move to the cloud, you have your S3 bucket in AWS. Do you need a firewall to protect it? Right, right. So that's the question. And, and I think there is lots of unknowns. And, and based on skill, I think, and resource capabilities, I think that's the, the, the weakest point. So, you know, when it comes to threat intelligence, companies are getting just tons of feeds. Mm -hmm. And you can give them all the threat intel in the world, and it's all about taking action mm -hmm. with that information. Um, what do you think is the best way to utilize threat intelligence when you're pulling in just all that information? So, we, we, had, we had, over over a number of years now, we've tried to, so when we set up the company, we, we set up the company to, and started off with threat protection service, which is an inline protection, real-time protection for the customer. Okay. Uh, we had in mind that moving forward, threat guidance is going to be extremely important. Right. Uh, so we did we trademarked that, we created a logger for it, we put it on the back burner and said in two years we're going to deal with it. Uh, beginning of the year we acquired a company called Lorca, uh, which uh, became our threat data lake. Okay. Where we harvest information from to actually create feeds or feed lookalike capabilities. Um, the problem with feeds, when, when a customer buys feed, uh, is that you get a list of IPs uh, that may have or may not have a tag attached to it, uh, saying that this, this IP has done this before, uh, based on a category, right? And then you go and select the different categories you want to block. So they've been very uncontextually aware, um, so there's been very little like details around what the IP actually has performed. Um, so we wanted to change that, so we moved away from the concept of threat intel and instead created something called threat insight. Okay. Um, so giving the insight behind the reason we put something into category and put it into feed list. Um, and uh, moving forward, I think that's going to be what we're going to see more and more. Companies going to reveal more and more about the reason they put something into feed list because it's hard to trust, uh, there's lots of false positives. Um, and specifically, if you want to do things like noise reduction, uh, remove everything which is daily noise on the internet and actually focus down on things that are important. You need to understand why this is noise, uh, why we classify it as noise, um, and uh, which which is possible to do when you, when you have the context aware uh, data behind it. So. And what's the difference again between a tag and a reason? Uh, so we so for example we we, have, we operate a sensor network of several several hundred sensors or nodes uh, that. On a daily basis, get attacked, but right. as well, we tap, tap data from backbones of, of ISPs and other things as well, uh, and analyze that. Uh, so, for example, uh, credential staffing uh, is one very common thing uh, mm -hmm. that requires right. and happens towards SSH, uh, ELK stacks, or SMTP and other things. Um, and there is a, there, there is a when when you look at threat data, there is a there's a need to understand uh, was this only a port scan? or would it, was this actually someone that tried to log on to service? And the good thing knowing that is as well that you can compare and match and see similarities between IPs and then start to map up and understand botnets. Uh, because these machines are not human people normally sitting behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a behavior that is being replicated among different uh, hosts. Right. And so then you can do clustering, you can understand uh, what sort of uh, botnet they belong to and so on, and then you know what to block more. Uh, so that's the whole point. So, you know, you use that term threat insight, and there's this interesting movement I, I see with companies in the way that they're sitting between uh, a company's infrastructure and the open internet, and some other companies that are really sort of going after hackers that, you know, they provide defenses, mm -hmm. but they can go after hackers when they see malicious actions you know, being taken against an enterprise. I'd love to get your uh, uh, opinion on what, that's a very fine line. Mm -hmm. Like to, to have that insight, yeah, the, basically hack back is, where do you see that line moving? Because it's always gonna be fine, but I feel like more and more we're, we're tiptoeing over that line or, or trying to get to a point where companies can tiptoe over that line sure. and, and go after the attackers uh, in their own right. Yeah. So, I mean, hack back or scan back or depending on 
uh, how, how you do it and perform it. I mean, it's an efficient method for, for example, to take botnets. Right. That, that's usually where it's being used today. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a gray line, right? Uh, or a fine line uh, that you walk and you want to make sure you walk on the right side of it. Um, but it, I think it's necessary to some extent uh, to, to get that insight into uh, and be able to disclose new new type of, of botnets, new new networks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we use similar methods as well uh, when, when we uh, operate or, and when we collect data. Um, Scanbag is definitely a function we use in leverage. Uh, and it's very fe- efficient. And um, you can do it in different ways. You can do active and passive scanning. And so you can hide yourself as well and, and those kind of things. So. So, Joachim, we'd like to end these interviews on random questions, but since we're here at Black Hat and we're always talking about cybersecurity and how enterprises like to protect themselves, um, we want to hear what you do on uh, a daily basis or what you do as far as protecting yourself online cybersecurity-wise. You don't have to be, obviously, specific because we want you to stay protected, but (laughs) what do you do on a day-to-day basis that keeps you protected online? I mean, uh, we small company uh, operate very sensitive data uh, and have very, I mean, customers that expect us not to be the weakest link, right? So uh, we take security extremely highly. Um, so and that goes like simple things: never use passwords, use SSO solutions, uh, make sure your machine is up to date, uh, use hardware encryption keys, uh, uh, like screen lockers, uh, like. All those kind of things that, that you normally do to keep yourself safe, really. Um, and uh, make sure, like, sharing stuff, uh, put controls in, like phishing programs uh, or anti-phishing programs, even for the people. Uh, I think that's actually things we do to make sure that, that our staff understands and knows what, what they act on. Uh, Great. So, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. <laughs> really, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to speaking to you in the future. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks again to Jochen for joining us. And Jen, we will have our last interview from Vegas next week. And it should be really, really interesting. We're going to break some news with uh, an exclusive uh, company launch this week, it looks like. Awesome. Looking forward to um, reliving that experience. (laughs) (laughs) And that will wrap it up for this week. Thanks again for listening. As always, stay curious.